0: Hello and welcome to the shut your new soul podcast today I speak with Ty Pinkins, former communications aide at the White House and author of the new book, 23 miles and running. Hope you enjoy. Ty, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, We talked about this a while ago and I wasn't always sure it was going to happen, but I'm so glad you're here.
1: (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm 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 glad to be on. Happy to, I'm happy to speak with you. Thank you so much.
0: So I want to talk first about our 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 friendship because we we are friends friends right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, we <laughs> <laughs> yeah we are friends. We've been friends for a long time.
0: <laughs> so so we met in in college at Tougaloo College. Matter of fact. Um, Think I was a sophomore and you were a freshman, am I right? Yep.
1: I was a freshman. You were already there when I um when I got there. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and and I, I, I got there and they told me I was gonna have a roommate and I was hoping that I wouldn't get one. Because <laughs> the, the previous year my roommate wasn't a best fit for me. But luckily he wasn't he wasn't around a lot and I was like, oh, and this is a freshman. And then <laughs> and then you walked you walk through the door. And right. I feel like we like immediately started to click.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. I, for me, it the the it was a uh, for me it was interesting to, to just to see someone. Oh man, did you hear that?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm here.
1: Okay. Yeah, for me it was interesting just to. Um, to meet someone from outside of my little community that I came from, I, it was my first time being out of, out of little little old Rolling Fork, Mississippi, and and even though Tougaloo had what a, a student population of maybe a 1, thousand fifteen hundred students, I was still overwhelmed. But to see a familiar face, or not a familiar face, but a, a, a welcoming face for me walking in the dorm room door was a that was a that was extremely helpful.
0: Oh yeah, and and I was I was so appreciative because the prior year i spent a lot of time alone so when i wasn't in class i was i was by myself a lot and then all of a sudden i had you and we would we would come back to the dorm and like talk about stuff you didn't you didn't mind and i was blaring Soundgarden and lenny Kravis <laughs> and tupac at the same time you're like oh that's cool
1: Man, Lenny Kravitz changed my life. You you, <laughs> int- you introduced me to Lenny Kravitz and Are You Gonna Go My Way and uh, all of that. And I remember us driving down to the Ross Barnett Reservoir, your little blue Volkswagen Beetle playing oh, Lenny Kravitz in, in, in Confunction and in, in, uh, uh, Lionel Richie and all of that. Man, that was those were the times, man. I'm, I'm telling you.
0: Good times, man. I don't... Yeah. I almost forgot about that. I, I I don't even like remember that well. Like you being in in the bug.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, man, we went everywhere in the bug. Oh goodness gracious! Don't even start.
0: Oh my god that that yeah. that car that car got me through college and all the way to my first job. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you you ended up uh, uh, leaving school. And you you joined the army, Mm -hmm. so talk a little bit to me about that experience.
1: So when I um I when I was at Tougaloo, I there were certain tools and and um, just social resources that I wasn't really accustomed to. I hadn't grown enough to appreciate um, being in college yet. I, I enjoyed the experience, but I was looking for something else, and so that's what prompted me to to leave and join the army. Cause you know, I had, uh, uh against everybody's uh, recommendations. I, I decided I wanted to get a full-time job and go to school full time. Also put management skills. And I was working at a, um, a newspaper factory there in Jackson while going to Tudorloo in the daytime. And I met a, a Marine Sergeant, a Marine Sergeant. And I just started asking him about his experiences in the military. He was telling me about traveling the world and it sounded, it sounded good to me. And so I, um one day joined the military without letting you know or anybody know, even my parents. And um a few weeks later I was gone, I vanished. I noticed how you felt because I told tell you that I wasn't coming back.
0: I know, dude, I was I was crushed. I was like, what just happened?
1: <laughs> yeah. I uh I, I uh, a re- a recruiter showed up at my door at my parents' trailer house there in Rolling Fork which which is about what well, an hour and twenty minutes from Tugaloo and um Chuck threw me in a van, and we drove to Louisiana, and I, um, I was gone for 21 years. So, <laughs> <laughs>
0: so fast forward a little bit, you, mm-hmm. you go into the army, you spend quite a bit of time overseas. What Germany?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Uh, I spent some time in Germany. I uh, visited. Um, um, I was all over Europe: uh, Germany, uh, Belgium, uh, Austria, uh, London, Italy. Um, Fuerteventura ventura uh, all over the place and then I spent some years in Asia also I did Japan and had a stopover in South Korea um, and this is all before I even um, started to end my my military career but I um, yeah I spent a lot of time all over Europe and Asia just enjoying life and it gave me an opportunity to develop those those time management skills, those um, social skills, those cultural skills I needed in order to to complete my education, which I did on what, about four different continents, (laughs) you know, and finally graduated there in uh, Okinawa, Japan. And yeah.
0: Did did you see any time in uh, the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, I did. I I did uh, three tours in Iraq. Um, My first tour was in, uh, what, spring of 2003 when the war first started. And yeah, I had about, I was a platoon sergeant, young platoon sergeant, hadn't been in charge of, of anybody before. And all of a sudden I was placed over a platoon of, of, uh, about 20 soldiers ranging in age from, um, as young as 18 all the way up to 45 years old. And I was a young, oh, wow. 27 year old, yeah, 27 year old kid. And, and he, I was chosen over two people who outranked me and uh, that for me, that was surprising and humbling. Uh, but not as humbling as as taking uh, people's uh, sons and fathers and brothers into combat, and um, that whole experience was it was um, a life changing uh, experience for me just to be in that that, that situation and and um, seeing what happens to people when they're faced with that type of adversity and how they respond to the challenges of of Life or death, life or death situations, and how a group of people can come together and overcome um, circumstances.
0: Were you prepared for that? Because my my recollection of you at 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 Tougaloo and and from what I know about you, still like you're you're pretty mild mannered, easy going mm-hmm. kind of person. But to to be in a situation where you you uh, what's the word? You need you need to be forceful sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: like how how did you navigate that?
1: Uh for me, uh I'm I'm you know me, I'm naturally an introvert. You know, and I'm comfortable in my introversion. But I think being placed in that situation it draws things out of you that you didn't know were um in you in the first place. Leadership skills and the ability to face um adversities. And especially, that's especially the case when you're getting shot at. You (laughs) You wake up real quick and you figure, you figure it out. But um, I think what really um, woke me up was to see how that group of people, our platoon was called Rough Riders and how we came together in that, um, during that time. And those guys supported me, and I, I uh, supported. They supported me as their leader, and I supported them, and, and uh, we made it through that that, that situation together. Some tough times. We mm-hmm. were a communications platoon, and um, and uh, in basic training, all soldiers, uh, their foundational training is in infantry tactics, but you. You were given a job, you're given a job, and the the Army trains you to be a specific, uh, to do a specific thing. In my case, in our case, we were communications guys, satellite communications, telephones, electronics, um, computers, whatever. But um, when the war first started, all of that, our training, our communications training, got pushed to the background. And we were expected to perform infantry tactics and for the next uh, 12 months well actually 15 months because we got extended um, a couple of days before we were supposed to go home um, we um, were expected to perform those infantry tactics and we we conduct, we conducted um, all together uh, I would say at least a hundred um, combat raids combat escorts and um, and quick reactionary force uh, missions so there's a little communications platoon with Kids as young as 18 years old. It was mind blowing, but to see them grow, you know, and face those challenging what challenges was uh, it's, it's something that I'll never ever forget, and it's something that um, that I, I I speak to some of them every now and then, and it's something that uh, uh, a team a team that we cherish.
0: Mm-hmm. So you get back to the states and. Um, we, we talked a little bit about this a couple of years ago, but I don't recall exactly uh, what happened. But you were you were looking for a new post, right? Or you needed a new post.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I when I after my first tour in Iraq, they um, I was in. I don't know ex- wh- what which moment are you talking about because after my first like, tour, like,
0: like the, the transition that that brought you to
1: the White House. Oh, okay, that. So uh, uh, that was after I had completed two additional tours in Iraq by that time. And after my third tour, I guess, I guess the army felt bad for me because they they were dogging me out. (laughs) But after that third tour, man, I was worn out and um, I was going through some relationship uh, uh, issues, uh, going through a divorce, which is a lot of soldiers. did. war is hard on a marriage. And um, they sent me to Okinawa, Japan. my favorite duty station, hands down, best place I've ever been in the military. So I was stationed on the island of Okinawa and I stayed there for um, a little while. And the Army was, to get to how I got to the White House, the Army decided that I should uh, go back to the United States for two weeks for some training in Williamsburg, Virginia. It was uh, video teleconference training that helped me build my skills in a specific communications area. And Um, after the training, the two weeks of training was complete. I had uh, two days to spare. It was a Saturday and a Sunday. And I realized that I was only um, two hours from the nation's capital from Washington, D.C. But I had never visited. I'd never been to Washington, D.C. I've been all around the world, in London and Tokyo and all over the place. And I had visited over 30 states and nearly 20 countries at that particular time. But I had never been to Washington, D.C. And so that Saturday morning, I walked out of my hotel room there we in Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, hopped on I-95 with a friend of mine. Uh, a, a friend from high school actually came to visit me, and, and we hopped in the car together. And we hit uh, Interstate 95, and two hours later, we were driving through uh, Northern Virginia into into Washington, D.C. Now, um, and this is an interesting story. I was, we spent the weekend in Washington, D.C., And that Sunday, we were driving back to Williamsburg so that I could catch my flight back to Okinawa. And I stopped at a a, a, a random, I took a random exit to find some dinner that day. And I go to a macaroni grill, the restaurant macaroni grill. Mm. And I have dinner and I walk out to my car to get ready to leave. And I start the ignition and I realize I need to use the bathroom. And I leave the ignition running and my friend is sitting in the car and I go back into the restaurant and I pass by the bar. And a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in seven years was sitting in that bar, a random guy. And we had over the years, of my military career, we had randomly we pop up in each other's life. And that day he was sitting there and he at the time he was stationed in Washington, D.C., he told me and working for President Obama. And he um we chatted. He told me what he was doing. And I told him that I was. uh in okinawa and that i'd give him a call when i made it back to the island and i did um a few days later and he asked me if i wanted to work at the white house and surprisingly i told him no (laughs) (laughs) i said no uh, i was just after three tours in iraq i and and going through a divorce and 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 not having a lot of time with my kids i was just worn out and i needed a break and so i was like no i'm good i'll wait here and then a year later, I called him back because I had thought to myself, who turns down an opportunity to work for the first black president of the United States? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'm yeah. ready now.
0: <laughs> so, this, this was what, 2010, 2011?
1: That was 20 when I was when I when I saw him at that restaurant, it was 2011. And I actually submitted my application in the at the beginning of the fall in 2012. Um, I think it was October 2012 when I submitted my application to work at the um, white house. Okay. You so know, you, you
0: submit, you submit your application.
1: Then what happens? I, and I submit my application and then it was a long, long interview process. I think it lasted, oh man, a good eight, nine months where, um, there were phone interviews. There were multiple video teleconferences, um, post, uh, 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 video teleconferences where I spoke to people at White House Communications Agency there um, in DC from from uh, Okinawa, Japan, and then random um, federal agents showing up in my office in Okinawa asking oh, questions. Oh, I said, yeah, man. <laughs> so that's, one day, that's not intimidating, man. It's crazy. So one day I was uh, sitting, I was standing in my in in our battalion headquarters there in Okinawa, and an earthquake strikes, right. And the building starts shaking and i'm just a little southern kid from mississippi i ain't never been on no earthquake man <laughs> so, so the building starts shaking and i'm like what the heck you know and it stops after a few minutes it was it wasn't any damage to the building it was just obviously it was apparently it was a minor earthquake and i was the only person that was shook <laughs> so, I, I went back to my office and um somebody knocked on my door and there's this 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 um this tall white guy comes into the office and he's like, I'm from this federal office, blah, blah, blah. And I have some questions for you and everything. I'm like, wow. And so he sits down and he starts asking me stuff about um, middle school and and junior high school. And at this point, I'm like 30 something years old, you know, and um, he asks me questions. He tells me why he's there is for part of the interview process. And then he gets up and he says, thank you. He just walks away. And that happened a couple of times, you know. You know, he asked me questions about some of my friends. I gave him your name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably got a
0: phone call. It was like, I don't know this number. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then I, uh, it, the process went on for uh, several months. And I think the last interview happened in the spring where I, uh, had to wake up at like, uh, three o'clock in the morning and, and, um, into a video teleconference. We had this large, um, it's like one hundred inch uh, screen on the wall. And when I dialed in, these three people from uh th- I dialed in from Okinawa, Japan, and these three people from Washington DC popped up on the screen in this room on a at a round table. And they commenced to the interview me for the next two hours. And the last interview the last interview question came from um the White House Communications Agency's chief of staff and she asked me what I was what I was reading. And on the flight back from uh, from uh, when I had met my friend, Link, at that restaurant, I bought the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, which is an absolutely amazing book. And I told her that was I was reading. And she almost fell out of her seat. She so was like, I'm reading the same thing. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, uh, a few weeks later, they told me that I had been um, accepted to the White House Communications Agency. And the Army told me that they were cutting my time short. In Okinawa, and I was leaving early to here to Washington DC. Wow! So, tell me about that
0: first day walking into the White House.
1: Well, um with the White House, you don't start off in the White House. It's a process, and you have to uh, you have to earn your way to 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 actually working in the White House. So, I started off as uh, on at, at probably the lowest point on the totem pole when I first got out got to the white house communications agency, because the, um, the agency that, um, supports the president is located not on the white house grounds, but at, um, a base, um, that's right outside of Washington, DC. Yeah. You took me there. Yeah. Yeah. There, but, um, I worked there for about a year and a half. And then I was assigned to, uh, be one of the president's communications aides. And that's when I first had the opportunity to walk to the white house. And this is crazy. I woke up one morning and Link, I was replacing Link, my friend, whom I recommended the, the uh, restaurant a couple of years, uh, prior. Um, and I was, I woke up early one morning, maybe like five thirty, And I drove from my house in, um, in Maryland. And I showed up, um, and parked there on the ellipse outside of the white house. And I walked up through the gate and showed him my badge. And I came to another guy and showed him my badge. And it seemed like there were a thousand checkpoints to get into the White House. So <laughs> I showed my badge all these times and I go through this little scanner. And I I walk into the east wing and on the left is a, a this large picture of Nancy Reagan in a a, a, a bright red dress. And on the right, there was a Secret Service agent sitting at a desk who looked up at me nonchalantly and, and, to verify my, my, um, my credentials. And then he looked back down like I was nobody. <laughs> so I walked past him. <laughs> and and I, I met Link, who was getting ready to leave. I was leaving him that morning. Um, because we were staying, we, our, one of our responsibilities is we had to spend the night in the White House, um, when when it was our, our uh, turn to take, to, um, to be on duty. So his 24 hours were ending and I was replacing him. And, um, as, um, we, he was getting ready to leave. He decided to give me a quick tour. He walked me through the White House by, past the China room and the library and across the, uh, the East, the East Colonnade and then, and as well as the West Colonnade and, and, uh, uh, showed me where the Oval Office was at, and we went down and and got some food from the navy um the navy, uh, dining facility there in the in the White House, and he left, and it was just me, there, you know, in the White House. So, mm. uh, like I said, I'm an introvert, so I'm I, 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 I'm I'm a little quiet, but I want to learn as much as I can. So, that evening after everybody. Uh, departed uh six seven in the evening after most of the people got off work and most of the staff there got off work and, and departed i got up and uh, left my office and i said okay it's time for me to do my own personal tour now and so i just go into random rooms the 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 uh, white house library and uh, the china room and the map room and and just um see and, and touch and and read everything that i could You know, and the Secret Service agents were okay. I had my credentials. And so I'd walk around and I just peek into the Oval Office. It was empty, you know, and and peek into the Roosevelt Room. And it was absolutely fascinating, man. Just just having a a, a little country kid from Mississippi growing up on a dirt road, you know, um, 30 years ago down in the Mississippi Delta from chopping cotton to actually walking the halls of the White House unimpeded and just getting all this knowledge and all and and seeing all of this it was it was almost overwhelming you know
0: I can imagine because I I remember when you you, I I went to the White House with you and Mm -hmm. same things like if you go back and talk to you know Eight-year-old Frizzell and, and tiny Utica, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, poor kid. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking, I'm in the White
1: House. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. It was. It was absolutely crazy. Just that type of exposure, you know. And at that point, I was what? I'm about 40 years old, but I felt like that kid again.
0: <laughs> you know? I, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, granted, I didn't. I was unimpeded. Like there were places I couldn't go. So <laughs> like, I'm, I'm no Tyrone Pinkins. <laughs> but wow. from the little bit they told me, I was like, man, this this is this is history right here. This is substantial.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is. It, it is substantial. And I think what for me what was what was uh, important. And, and um, I guess it goes to why we founded our organization is how important it is that kids from poor and underserved communities get this this type of exposure, you know. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I tried to do while I was stationed there at the White House, um, I tried my best. I, I, I was intent on getting as many people who were from poor and underserved communities an opportunity to tour that um, that building. Because you know I, I'm blessed with an opportunity, and one of the uh, the privileges that we had was we could give personal tours to people. So I mm-hmm. I send an email back to anybody I knew in my little town and say if you're in Washington D.C. let me know, and we'll get you a tour, and I'll give you a personal tour. And I think after, I finally left, I had gotten I had given over 150 people tours. Of the uh, of the West Wing. <laughs> wow, <laughs> you know, little kids and old people and everything. Whenever they visit, come on over, let's get it in, and uh, and they did. And I, I, for me, I felt good about that.
0: We'll be back with more with our conversation with Ty Pinkins after the break. So b- before we before we talk about your 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 work with with kids, you have a, you have a few stories. I heard a little birdie told me you have a few stories about your time in the White House with Obama.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I had I had the opportunity to to meet him on a few occasions and um, and my job, um, I guess I I lucked out in getting this job with knowing my friend, Link McCoy, who who um, was there before me and who kind of guided me through the application process the job that I had required me to be in his, uh, in his bubble, uh, just like his secret service agent and his, and his doc, and his, his military aide, he had a communications aide also. But, um, so, and because of that, um, sometimes I found myself in his path. And I think for me, one of them, the, the, uh, the funniest um, stories was when at the 50th anniversary of the uh, bloody, uh, Sunday, the Edmund Pettus Bridge March, Um, We were down in Selma, Alabama and I was just standing there and uh, they had, they had constructed these huge tents that took up the entire street. And that was his, uh, I guess his staging place before he went on stage to give his speech that day. And I was just standing there um, to the side and I saw him walk past, well, I thought he he was walking past and I was just sitting there minding my own business. and then he just he makes a beeline and walks straight to me and, and sticks his hand out and instinctively, and, uh, and I reach out and grab his hand and shake it and he said, Hey, how you doing? Who's winning the game? And I was like, What? <laughs> what game? I was so shocked because that was my first time uh, ever meeting him, and I was like, "What?" And he was talking about who was winning the basketball game that day yeah, because it yeah. was in spring and the final the uh, the NCAA uh, tournament was going on. But he was like, "Whatever," <laughs> he, walked, <laughs> he walked away and gave his speech. But for me, that was that was uh, one of the uh, the moments that I really um, I'll, I'll always remember that he was um, there. And he didn't think so much of himself that he couldn't come over and speak to a random person standing there next to the wall, and he did it. And I, I, I witnessed him do that often, where he was the type of coolest, uh, he the coolest guy I've ever, one of the coolest cats I've ever met. And I, I always think about Outcast song when they say it's cooler than a polar bear's toenails. That's what yeah, I yeah. thought about. But he always did it, you know. And that one, uh, um. Trip, and I think it was. Um, it may have been towards the end of his term. We were in um, Vientiane, Laos, and we were coming. I think we were in Vientiane. We were coming down the elevator together. Was, he was in the elevator. I don't know if it was. Um, it was Valerie Jarrett or or um, Susan Rice. Um, who was else was in the elevator? But it was me, him, um, his doc and his Secret Service guy and his military aide. And I was standing there and I had on a, uh, a slim fit gray suit and um, I had a, my black satchel uh, over my shoulder. And he reaches into my satchel without my permission and grabs <laughs> me <laughs> without my just I'm going to reach into this guy's satchel. You're the president of the United States. Yeah. I guess that's what you can do. So uh, <laughs> he reaches into my satchel and grabs my one of my books that I had uh, hanging out of the back of my, back of my satchel. And um, he took that, takes it out. He looks at it. He's like, "Oh, what's this?" And, I said, and he said, "Oh, it's Tony Hsieh Coates. His, uh, his first book." And uh, he shoves it back in there. And uh, he takes a. He, he kind of leans back and he looks up and down at me. And he said, "You look good." And I, the only response, <laughs> the only response I had was to look at him and say, well, "Mr. President, you look good too." <laughs> <laughs> The elevator lost it. Everybody thought that was so funny. But that's all I had. You know, you look good, You look good, too. Look good
0: too. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's, this is probably the the first time in recorded human history that someone has referred to a president as the coolest cat
1: I've ever had. <laughs> he was. He was the coolest cat. I mean, when you see him walking, he just had to thing about himself where it's almost like he was floating. And the, yeah. the first time I saw it, that Outcast song came to mind. Cooler than a polar bear's toenails, you know. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But um, it was cool.
0: So you were not just there for for Obama. You were also there for the transition mm-hmm. from Obama to Trump.
1: Yeah.
0: Any uh, stories you could share about what that was like?
1: Well, one of the one of the unique things of working, working at the White House Communications Agency is that you don't serve the person. You don't serve the president. You serve the presidency. So one of the office, um, yeah, the office. and the, the job, um, the foundational concept of the job is that you're part of the continuity for the country. That you those military members there, and a lot of them work in the White House. More military members, and I think people really understand one of the the I think one of the foundational aspects of that is that when the presidency switches over, when the person changes, those military members they have the some of the institutional knowledge. The, they they provide some of that continuity that helps the country to 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 uh, to jump from this one person to this next person, and things not get too out of control to make sure that. That regardless of whether you're a Democratic president or a Republican president, that that person can still effectively communicate with the country and the world. And so being um, an army officer stationed there at the White House with a, as one of the President Obama's uh, communications aides, when he departed and Trump came in or President Trump came in, then naturally I became uh, a communications aide to the uh, administra- the Trump administration. And it was, for me, it was like night and day, you know, uh, those two, the, the two days the, when, when, uh, President Obama departed, I remember him having, before he departed, I remember him doing that, that, um, speech in the Rose Garden where people were, were tearing up, people were crying because it was a, it was a, uh, for some people it was a sad day, unexpected day. You know, they expected him to leave, but they didn't expect him to leave in that fashion, uh, with the person that, that was coming into office. And he departed, and then I remember that the the, uh, the day that that President Trump came in, and it, the the atmosphere was totally different. And I walked through the White House, and all the pictures that I remember seeing of President Obama had vanished. You know, it was just bare wall. You know, and I nowhere. Yeah, yeah, it, the walls were bare because um, I guess they were changing the pictures, of, which I guess is understandable. Okay, okay, yeah, like they the changing- like the residents. Yeah, they were they were red, They were they were changing pictures out, and so um, a few days later, or uh, over time, the uh, pictures of President Trump and his presidency um, were on the walls, and that's understandable. And um, but just I, that that day after, or the next day, the atmosphere, um, you know, was just absolutely amazing. And I remember uh, standing. Um, right standing in the hallway right before you pop out of uh when you come down from uh i was standing in the the main hallway near the uh, china room and it's right off the stairwell where you come down from the residence and uh standing there and i was uh, i was getting ready to go and get some breakfast and i heard a little commotion to my right and it was uh, president uh, trump coming. Um, down he was headed to the Oval Office, and, and I kind of, just in hindsight, kind of looking at and thinking about the demeanor of the two individuals, you know, one cooler than a, uh, just as cool and, and calm and and, and, and seemed to always have things. Um, what he wanted to say, what he wanted to do was seem to always be planned, you know, so smooth. But the the that day, the incoming president, it seemed like uh, just for me rattled. If that makes any sense, and I and and I think you have to appreciate the 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 enormity of serving in the office. That's what I would uh, 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 attribute it too, but it was almost like seeing uh, someone who had not truly expected to be in that position, who was not really um, prepared for what he was, uh, for the office that he was walking to that day.
0: Yeah. Well, you're not the first person to say that. Dude. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, uh, even some within his own, you know, cabinet, like after the fact, have said that he he never expected to to win the election. So mm-hmm. I, I would imagine he was a little befuddled.
1: Yeah, it looked. That's what it looked like. That am standing there because I I, I I I distinctly remember his um his handlers um shuffling him down the hallway and cross and and across the uh, the west colonnade, and it just seemed like. Uh, someone who somebody else was moving his legs for him, <laughs> you know, if that if that makes any sense. But it, it, was, it was it was it was it was astonishing to just see the stark difference, you know. And I think even and I only spent six months with um with the Trump administration because I was coming up on retirement from the military. But in that six months, just to see just the 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 vast difference and the way that two people administer um, their office, the way that those two people uh, approach people, the different um, levels of humility, the different ways that they empathize with people, the different, the vast difference in sympathy that they have for people was just mind-blowing. Yeah, the the, the difference in... um, and from my perspective, just looking at it, the difference in the level of intelligence, you know, which is for me, it was mind boggling. Yeah, scary. So, too. I want to move.
0: <laughs> well, go ahead. I was, I was, I was pretty scared that <laughs> during during that time frame, too. I was like, I'm gonna have to move to
1: Canada, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I, I yeah. Won- one, I, of yeah. one of the funniest things that, one of not, and it's not funny, but one of the, I guess one of the interesting things that happened, I think the the day after inauguration, I don't know if it's the day after or the next day, but right after inauguration, presidents have uh, historically gone to the uh, National Cathedral, I believe it is. And uh, we were in the motorcade driving um, through DC. And uh, I was, who was I? I was in the vehicle with um, Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer was in the vehicle. Spicy. Yes, yeah, Spicy Spicer. So, <laughs> and we were driving, and we and, and, and it kind of put some things in perspective for me with regard to how uh, normal people were viewed. We were driving, and we went under a uh, under an overpass on the way to the uh, National Cathedral. And I heard um somebody say, oh, look at those people. They're getting ready to have a barbecue. There must be protesters. And uh turns out I looked out the window and there were some homeless people. You know. Get out. Yes. No way. It was there were some homeless people and I looked at uh uh um, Sean Spicer and just the way that they were communicating, he would I, I really believe that they thought that those were protesters and people that were getting paid to. <laughs> I was like, "Are you serious?"
0: Protest against
1: them, yeah. Yeah, they, they were homeless people, and that they kind of put things in perspective for me with regard to how how the administration or some people in the administration looked at viewed uh view people. Well, and
0: also the egotism of that, yeah. It's like mm-hmm. it wasn't about wasn't about these people mm-hmm. uh, at all. It was about how how they perceived them, mm-hmm. like. Their, their existence—they only existed as in opposition mm-hmm. to
1: them. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it is absolutely. It, it, oh man, blew my mind. But uh, yeah, so many, so many different things happened in that six months of like uh, it's time for Tyrone to go. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so speaking of
0: going, I want to talk a little bit about. um what you've been doing when it comes to, uh, um, uh, uh, educating youth, mm-hmm. um, uh, full disclosure. I've been a part of, of your organization, um, pyramid project, but talk a little bit about, you know, how that all started. Uh, what's, what's the, um, what's the, 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 the kind of the, the purpose, the, 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 the reason for being
1: mm-hmm. yeah so the pyramid project it it started because when i was in okinawa i was already planning my i had six years left in the army and i was already planning my exit <laughs> you know? i i knew that i wanted to i knew i knew so i knew what my goals were in the next uh five to ten um to 15 years i've always been a planner and sitting uh, sitting in Okinawa, I was thinking to myself, outside of these specific goals that I have, what are what are some other things that I wanted to do? And I knew that I wanted to give back to my community, and um, I started to think about that. And over the next few years, I started to develop an idea of what I wanted to do, and and eventually, my wife Sabrina and I we decided that we wanted to found uh, the Pyramid Project, a nonprofit organization that's targeted that's that's dedicated to helping. Um, youth from poor, underserved, poverty-stricken communities um, to expose those youth to the social, cultural, and economic capital necessary for them to uh, fulfill their dreams. Because one of our beliefs, and I I use myself as a, a, I see myself as a test case that when you take um, these kids, particularly children from the, um, the Mississippi Delta who grew up, literally, um right next to cotton fields on dirt roads, when you expose them to the social, cultural and economic resources that um a lot of their counterparts get, that these kids turn into valuable assets. They turn into they turn into they turn into to adults that are able to turn around and contribute back into their communities and, and give back to their to communities. So that's um uh, that's why we began the Pyramid project. And so far we've had over a hundred kids to, to visit the nation's capital, to, to take part in the organization.
0: Well, and and I I remember when we were dorm roommates talking about being in (laughs) classrooms where, you know, we considered ourselves pretty smart people, Mm -hmm. but it, it sometimes it seemed like there were other people who just had something else.
1: Yeah. 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 And
0: it it, it wasn't something they got in school.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like that. There, no matter how hard I tried, there was somebody who had that it that I didn't have. That somebody had that had that one that one element that I, I just I, I I didn't have it because I felt like because of, of how I grew up, where I grew up, and the limited resources and the, the limited amount of exposure that that um that I had had. And I right. think that for well, us, it, for for. For our organization, that's how we view a lot of the kids, that sometimes they – these are intelligent, brilliant uh, kids. They just don't have the the, the level of exposure that, that some others may have. Right.
0: Well, yeah, and, and and I can remember at the time in those discussions, like, we didn't really know what to call it <laughs> until, until for both of us. It probably happened after we left school. Mm-hmm. and got out in the world and you could see, we could put a word to it
1: yeah yeah with the exposure <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's that's the word and and i didn't i didn't i didn't know what to call it until after i had been around the world and started doing all these crazy um in some people's minds crazy things and and, and what really illuminated it for me When I was in Europe and in Asia, one of the things that I did was I used to wake up on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning or a Friday morning if we had a long weekend, especially if we had a long weekend. I wake up on a Friday morning and I'd hop in my car and I just get on a German Autobahn and I take an exit that I had never taken before, just random. Mm -hmm. And I drive to a corner in a in the middle of a town that i had never been to before maybe berlin or frankfurt or i did it in vienna austria and brussels where i'd drive somewhere and i'd park my car on a on a cross street and i'd write down the the name of the cross street on a piece of paper and i'd stuff it in my pocket and i'd intentionally walk until i was sufficiently lost in that city and I just explored the city for hours and hours, whether it was London or Austria or Belgium, Belgium uh, Brussels or, or Largo de Garda, Italy. I just walk and walk and walk. And at the end of the day, when I was tired, I'd give a taxi driver a piece of paper and he'd take me back to my car and I'd find my way back to my, um, my military barrack. Um, but for me, that, that illuminated the, net, the, the power of exposure. You know mm-hmm. of becoming comfortable in the world and allowing yourself to just become consumed consumed by a different um different culture and that's that that kind of fed into the whole pyramid project concept of of temporarily move, remove children from their underserved communities and just show them as much as you can and for lack of better words infect them with possibilities and put them back in that community. And when they get ready to graduate from high school, they can't forget that experience.
0: Well, because you don't know what's possible no. until you see what's possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You you have no idea. You have you have no idea what you can achieve until you, you've seen it. Uh, someone else achieve it or you've seen an, uh, an example of it. And uh, oh, man, uh, no, <laughs> Okinawa. <Okay, now. laughs> Was, it's, it's, uh, it's huge. It is. On the island of uh, of uh, Okinawa, I had a, um, a a good friend of mine was, was there. We used to go driving in my car at Lajouti on the island. And Okinawa has only one main highway that runs straight in the middle of the island. And it's it's about, the island is about 16 about 60, 65 miles long. And in some places, it's only a mile, two miles wide. You can stand in some places on Okinawa and you can see each coast, <laughs> you know. Wow. And so we were driving up the highway one day and I did it again. I took an exit that I had never taken before and drove through a city, through through the little uh, town. And we came up on a, um a dock and there was a boat. And, and I looked to her and I said, I want to get on that boat. You know, and we we went up to the the boat captain, and in my broken Japanese, I asked him how much it cost to ride, and he said fifty yen or hundred yen or something. I said fine, and hopped on. And the next thing I know, I found myself uh, sailing across the uh, the East China Sea. You know there's no way in the world an active duty army officer is supposed to be in the middle of the East China Sea. <laughs> so an hour an hour and a half later, we stop at this island called Kumejima, Kume being the name of the island and Jima being an island, Kumejima, Kume Island. And I get off and I ask him, so what, what time do you need me to come back so that we can sail back home? And he's like, Oh no. We don't go back home until tomorrow. <laughs> and so we wander around the island and and, and um, it was so fascinating. We wander around the island. We stop and get some food at a, uh, a local Japanese restaurant. And this was a small island. It wasn't It wasn't um, built up and, and, and organized like Tokyo or something like that. You, I'm talking about little huts and, and stuff like that. And so we find a hotel and stay in a hotel, spend the night in a hotel and the next day I'd stop uh, at some random uh, little Japanese kid's house because there was a group of kids out playing basketball and they saw me passing by the six foot tall black guy. I'm not that tall, I'm only feet. And they was like, oh, Michael Jordan. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm not Michael Jordan. I had my hair shaved at the time. And, right. and they had a basketball going. They were like, could you please dunk it? And I was like, well, I, I haven't dunked the ball in a long time. And I tried and I missed so. <laughs> oh, yeah. you just. You just, you just.
0: You just shattered all of their yeah, like possibilities. You know, and they
1: said, that's not Michael Jordan. <laughs> so, and so I, uh, after a couple of tries, I got it, and then we got back to the uh, to the dock, and the, the 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 captain was sitting there waiting, and I got on, and I was like, okay, so how far is the ride home? And he said, oh, we're not going home. We're going to another island where we have to spend another night. And I was like, okay, so I'm all game now. And we drive, we we sail across the East China Sea again to Tonakijima, and I get off. And there, when I I get off, the people are so nice. I get off the boat and I walk across the street. And this this island, Tonakijima, is one of the few islands that were that was not touched in World War II. So it's just traditional Japanese culture. And I get off and this, this Japanese man just out of nowhere just offers me a, a a jar of pickled vegetable or something. Just say, here, this is for you, you know, in his broken English. And he walks off, you know, and obviously I look different than everybody there. And um, I find a little traditional Japanese hotel with the bamboo uh, walls and floor. And um, they bring me uh, some fresh fish, you know that had just been caught in some rice. And you saw the picture where I was sitting there uh, with my legs crossed, eating with chopsticks. And one of the um, most uh, interesting things happened after I ate that fish. I had lost my grandmother during my first tour in Iraq in the middle of the tour, it devastated me. This old lady, because there were no cars on the island or very few, I didn't see any. Uh, the streets weren't were, only one of the streets were paved that went around the whole island from my understanding. It was everything else was like a dirt path with these candles lining the streets and the trees folded over the street and it rained and not a drop of water hit the dirt. But after I finished that meal, I walked outside and this uh, old lady on a moped, this tiny moped drove up, reminding me of my grandmother. And the lady made me get on the back of that moped, my knees were in my chest. (laughs) And she gave me a ride around the island. (laughs) But it was fascinating and the next day I got on the got back on the boat and, and went home. In exposure, wow. you know.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. So so Ty, you're currently at Georgetown Law. Mm-hmm. Um what's what what happens next for you?
1: Well, I, I have about according to my dry erase board to my right here, I have about nine months before I graduate. So <laughs> <laughs> So I'll I'll keep doing the pyramid project because that's my heart and soul is helping um, these kids from these underserved communities, regardless of whether it's mostly um, in Mississippi, but any community. We've helped kids from from New York and San Antonio, Texas, and all all the way out to Albuquerque, New Mexico. We've uh, we've, we've brought kids to the nation's capital. So I'll continue doing that. Um, My ultimate goal is to uh, run for office one day. Um, in the uh, not-too-distant future, is to run for office. I'm trying to build up my uh, repertoire. I have the the military career, the law degree, the nonprofit organization where I'm giving back. And one of the, the interesting things that, that's about to happen here, I was down in Mississippi this summer, and I worked for the Mississippi Center for Justice. And they have a program called the... Uh, What's the name of this program? Uh, the Justice Court Navigator Program, where they help people from poor and underserved communities in the Mississippi Delta to understand and navigate navigate the justice court system. Because oftentimes, you poor people from poor and underserved communities, one, they can't afford um, adequate legal representation; two, they have not been exposed enough to understand their rights when they are faced with the, facing the justice system. And um, three, they just don't have the resources necessary to have themselves represented well. So the justice court navigator system has been implemented in highest County for the past couple of years. I was offered a fellowship to go back down there and implement it in a couple of the counties in the Miss, deep in the Mississippi Delta of, uh, what is it? Um, Sharkey County, Yazoo County, and um, in Humphreys County. So I'm going after graduation. I'm going back down to Mississippi Delta to do that that important work down there. So you, you mentioned running for office. So we're
0: talking about running for office in Mississippi. We're talking what local, state, which what you have in mind.
1: Well, I haven't I haven't decided yet. It's either going to be state or obviously state or or uh, or the federal level. But wherever I can help uh, Mississippians, wherever I can help. People from those communities that, like the communities that I come from, because one of the issues um, that people face in in um, in those communities is the national uh, graduation rate is about eighty five percent. Unfortunately, in some of the communities in the Mississippi Delta, the graduation rate is as low as sixty five percent. And this is all while we out the superintendent of education in Mississippi is the highest paid state-level public schools official in the country, making about $300,000 a year, nearly double the national average. that's crazy. To put it in perspective, the state with one of the the worst performing education systems has the highest paid state-level education official. That doesn't-
0: To put it it more in perspective, I worked as a teacher Mm -hmm. in, in the Mississippi Delta, and my 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 first contract was twenty-two thousand dollars a year.
1: Wow. Wow and,
0: and that and that was with a that was with a master's degree. Oh wow. So I didn't even realize the superintendent was making three hundred thousand dollars a year. Man. That's that's bananas.
1: It is bananas if especially if you take into consideration that this is just what maybe a decade ago that you were that you were offered twenty-two thousand dollars a year to work as a teacher in Mississippi. When I was growing up, in the 80s, my dad was raising five uh, a five-person family as a driving tractors off of a, making about $20,000 a year. So a teacher today right. in Mississippi is making what a person driving a tractor maybe 30 years ago was making in Mississippi. Come on. Right. That doesn't make sense. And, and, and we have to do something about it. You know, I mean, even in, in, in more troubling uh, statistics, the national poverty rate. Is about twelve percent. In some of the counties in the Mississippi Delta, child poverty exceeds fifty percent and is as high as sixty percent. That's unconscionable. That, that that that's that's unbelievable. That as one of the richest countries in the world, we have we have a state where people are living in these uh these conditions. And that's, those are some of the issues that I want to try to tackle. Um, um, when I when I get ready to run for office. Well, Ty,
0: it's been great having you on. Before I let you go, I want you to let people know um, if they want to get involved or donate with Pyramid Project, where where should they go? Mm -hmm. Uh, If they want to hear more Mm -hmm. of your work or uh, 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 contact you, where where, where can they reach out?
1: Well, for the the Pyramid Project, we're all over the place. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We have a website. You can uh, find us at www.pyramidproject.com. Um, we're on, um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Ty Pinkins, T-Y-P-I-N-K-I-N-S, and on Facebook at Ty Pinkins. And we have a Pyramid Project page on, on Facebook as well. You can donate, um, volunteer, read about our organization. Um, if you want to know more about some of the stuff that I've been doing, I have, I did a TED Talk recently, which will be coming out. Um, so we did a TED Talk there on Martha's Vineyard. Act surprisingly at one of the venues where Martin Luther King um, actually shot pool. Um, interesting. Uh, <laughs> <house there. laughs> um, that and um, I have a book that's coming out in um, in the spring in March that details my my void, my journey from those cotton fields in the Mississippi Delta to sleeping in the White House. It's called Twenty Three Miles and Running, and it'll be coming out in the spring. And you're in the book. <laughs> Oh man, wow. <laughs> I I couldn't I could not uh talk about the time that took me. Come on. <laughs>
0: I I feel like that scene from The Jerk when uh Steve Martin gets the phone book uh-huh. and he's like I'm I'm somebody. <laughs> <laughs> the new phone book's here. The new phone book's here. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, time, man? It's, it's it's always good to talk to you. Yeah. Uh Thanks again for being on the show. Um, Hopefully we can have you back soon.
1: Okay. Thank you. And, uh, And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. You have an awesome day. You too. All right.
0: Thank you for listening to Shut Your News Hole. Please remember to rate and review on your podcast app. It really helps others find our show. Thank you.